Welcome to the Thrive Space Podcast, conversations that cultivate your heart and your company. What really motivates you as a leader? If you've been with us for the past three episodes, you've discovered what drives your decisions and responses, either respect, value, or approval. Thanks for joining us today. John Erickson and Dennis Humphrey here to dig into the fifth episode of the Thrive Space podcast. Today, we're gonna change up our style a bit to highlight how our root motivations play out in life and relationships. As a wrap of our series, we're going to have a conversation about the characters of an immensely popular television series now made into two movies, Downton Abbey. And before you groan too much, we think you're gonna enjoy seeing the nuances of our root motivations played out by the creative vision of Julian Fellows, who wrote almost every word of dialogue for the six seasons in both movies. Let's get started. Now that we've spent three podcasts discussing our root motivations, respect, value, and approval, we thought it'd be helpful to highlight them in personalities, in relationships and conversations. Must confess that I put off watching Downton Abbey until recently. Uh, of course, Debbie, my wife, and several friends had watched all through all the six seasons more than once. Um, but my pride-based attitude could not let them be right about how uh, really good it is. And so a year and a half of limited social interaction and a well-timed movie trailer enticed me to try the first episode, expecting, of course, that it would be awful and that I wouldn't even make it through the entire first episode. However, within minutes, I was hooked. I watched the entire six seasons over the last month. That's called binging, I think, as well as the first movie. And actually rewound the movie a few times to go back to some of the best scenes in it. So as I watched the way Julian Fellows uh, filled out each of these 20, what, 30 or 40 or so characters and their story arcs, I caught myself subconsciously identifying each of their root motivations. Now, I know that's crazy. They're not real people. But he did such an excellent job building out their characters so fully. I got attached to them in their world, and I could see their root motivations. And they're very, very clear. And so as, uh, we, as it came to the last season of the show on that New Year's Eve in 1925, I understood why that show was so doggone compelling. So I thought that uh, we needed to bring in a uh, resident uh, Downton Abbey expert uh, for this discussion. So uh, joining us today is one of my favorite people, uh, my daughter, Elizabeth. She is a pediatrician at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago and renowned Downton Abbey enthusiast. In fact, uh, she's so enthusiastic about this show. There was a quiet moment in our house. She was up in her room watching. And in the third season, there's a major event that happens uh, where a character is taken out of the series and all was quiet. And suddenly I hear this shriek from upstairs. No. And of course, being worried about what was going on, I ran upstairs to find out it was just Downton Abbey. That's how enthusiastic Liz is about this. So Liz, you are the perfect guest for this podcast, not only because we both love you so much, but also because I know that you help us bring life to these characters and the way they show us our responses to life's challenges. Welcome, Liz. Thank you for joining us. Hi, guys. It's nice to be on today. Yeah, the moment that my dad, Dennis, is referencing is actually a Christmas morning. So not only was it 
a quiet moment in the house. It was the nice quiet of Christmas morning. Everything's peaceful. We'd all stay up late. In our house, the tradition is to open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas morning because no one wants kids up at 5 a.m. A very um, good British tradition, <laughs> by the way. So um, it was very quiet. Everyone was sleeping in. But um, in the UK, the last episode of the third season premiered on Christmas Day, meaning that if I got up at the right time, I could catch it as it streamed live. So I got up at the right time. Everybody's kind of lazing around napping. And um, I was watching the episode and something really tragic and awful happens. And I, I did, in fact, scream and wake up the whole house. Everybody was not pleased with me. But I do love this show, have watched it a lot. The first seasons I've watched a couple times, subsequent seasons, probably only once due to time. Med school doesn't allow a lot of time for binging television, but yeah, I really do love the show. So thanks for having me on. That's fantastic, Liz. Starting a company actually isn't great for binging either. (laughs) Anyway, well, that's great. It is wonderful to have you here. Most people on the podcast won't know how closely the three of us actually are related uh, I held you on the day you were born some odd 20 something years ago. So I won't tell everybody how old you are, but yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, we've known Liz her whole life, literally. And so it's really, really great to have you with us. So for those of you that maybe aren't absolutely familiar with the show and you don't have to be, and by the way, there's going to be a lot of spoiler alert here. So if you're thinking about watching the series, you may want to watch it before you listen to this podcast because you're going to hear some things that will give away a few of the secrets they might not you might not want to know as you're watching through it. But this basically this show is about a uh, a stately manor in in Yorkshire in uh, in England um, in the early twenties uh, of the the last century, and all the events that kind of happen around that time frame in England and, and things that are going on in this family, this aristocratic uh, family, uh, you know, that's centuries old, the Crawley family. And uh, Lord and Grantham and his wife, Lady Grantham, live upstairs, what we call in a British home, the upstairs, which is where all the stately home, the stately rooms are. They wear beautiful costumes uh, they went out of their way to put these characters uh, together in a way that made them very believable and either very likable or or uh, very dislikable. Julian Fellows is a genius. In a home like this, typically at that time, there was also a retinue of servants or people who took care of both the house and the people who resided in the house. And so you have what we refer to as the upstairs and the downstairs of this home. And in the upstairs, you have probably 20, 10 or 20 characters that kind of play out their story arcs. And then in the downstairs, you have the servants who play out another 10 or 20 of them that play out their own lives, both together and as they relate to the people who live upstairs and their responsibilities to care for them in various ways. And so I thought maybe we would just start downstairs, um, Liz and, uh, and Dennis, and just think through the various people that you have there. Of course, you have Mrs. Patmore. You know, she is the, the, uh, the round cook who is very serious about making sure that her kitchen runs a tight ship and that, the, that every meal and every tea time is served correctly. Um, you know, you have 
all kinds of different servants and footmen. And of course, you have the ubiquitous, you know, Mr. Carson, who is the older uh, butler who kind of runs the whole estate. And he's been there for several generations. And so there's just a number of different characters who play out their story in the, in the downstairs of the home. So with that kind of an introduction, Liz, pick out a couple of your favorite people in the downstairs of Downton Abbey and tell me why you like them. What, what is it about them? Or, or, or you totally dislike and wish you could, you know, wish you could throw them out a window or something. So I would say my favorite character downstairs is undoubtedly Anna. She is just so sweet and kind and loves to mediate conflict and avoid conflict. And I felt like when I was watching the first seasons, I think they came out when I was either the end of maybe in the middle of college. I just really identified with her, like not wanting to rock the boat too much. She is, she has this lovely, delightful, little quiet, but intense romance with one of my other favorite characters, Mr. Bates, who is uh, Lord Grantham's valet or the man who helps him dress in the morning and get ready for his lordly day. And I loved how just kind of I don't know. I loved how their romance really played out. It was very sweet and very tender. And that really made Anna one of my favorite characters. Um, Mr. Bates has like a lot of, he's like a tortured past. And Anna was this character who was kind of this light, happy person who came along and soothed him. And that was, that. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, you just can't help falling in love with Anna. She's Lady Grantham's lady-in-waiting, right? Her uh, maid. So yeah, she, takes she starts out of- as a kitchen maid just yeah. like one of the maids of the house and then kind of works her way up right, right, right. Um, actually, as she's there. Yeah, she takes care. Well, actually, that's not true. She's Lady Mary's uh, lady-in-waiting and she takes yeah. care of the three daughters. Mm-hmm. There's actually another woman who's there who we don't like very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> who, is, uh, who is actually Lady Grantham's lady-in-waiting. So, um, yeah. And, and I uh, do not like that character very much at all. That's O'Brien I don't even know if you really gosh her first name is even escaping me because she's just identified by like her last name is O'Brien and I really feel for that actress because like they just gave her this like horrendous costume and this hairdo that looks like a poodle's bad haircut and they just like really set her up to be this like toxic person in the household and as this lady's maid who listens to all the gossip and kind of uses that to manipulate her way around the characters and oh just gives me the chills yeah but there's a lot of intrigue that goes on between her actual I don't even know how you say her she's got a a very Irish name it's like Siobhan Finneran oh yeah Siobhan Chiffon. I don't know how you say this, but anyway, she uh, she is uh, she's quite she's a very nice person in person, actually. But in her character, she's a almost evil uh, in the way she and one of the other characters who we love to hate, who is uh, Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, starts off as a footman and uh, works his way up to be a valid and eventually through the series works his way up to be under Butler. And if you right. watch the movie, even the Butler. Uh, mm-hmm. after Carson leaves, but we love to hate Thomas Barrow. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, because, uh, he is just always scheming uh, to get like when Bates came, uh, he was constantly trying to get Bates in trouble. 
And uh, he he and uh, Mrs. O'Brien were constantly going back and forth, trying to get everybody in the house, you know, in some kind of chaos with with Anna, you know, and and others trying to to, to uh, calm everybody's nerves. So it's it's there's a lot of a lot of noise going on down there. What are you thinking, Dennis? Yeah, I was thinking about Anna and um, and John Bates, uh, the valet, and and how you, you're right, Liz. With Anna, she just longs to be approved of and loved, and especially with with Mister Bates, you know, she acts that out real well, and 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 yet, you know, she's she's not she has courage, but it really takes a lot for her to bring that up. And then you got John Bates, and, and we feel sorry for Anna. Because we see it, we just see it oozing off her, this, this desire to be approved by him. But then you get over to John Bates and you start to feel sorry for him because he has a malady, as a, he's a limp from a war injury. And yet that's the last thing John Bates would want from us is his pity or his, his feel sorry for him or anything like that, you know, being more that respect-based person, uh, you know, kind of self-reliant in that regard. In fact, I think he says that. I think at that one point he directly says, I don't, I don't want your, your pity. Like if you have me here, Lord Grantham hires him on to be his valet. And part of the early conflict with him is, is Bates going to be allowed to stay? He has this limp and there's all these conversations around like, well, I don't want your pity. Like just because I might not be able to be hired somewhere else, you know, don't have pity on me just because I'm your old war buddy. That is, that's not something I want. He's yeah. He's a very proud person who just wants to be respected. And, yeah. and that's very clear about him from really the first moment he arrives at the house. At the same time, you know, there's a couple of times where he really throws himself on the sword for the house. You know, he gets himself into all kinds of trouble. He's falsely accused of something, spent some time in prisons, so horrible things happen to him. But even in the midst of all of that, he's fiercely loyal. You know, and he comes in and, and, and even at one point, you know, he, he, he chooses to leave instead of a, let the house come under, you know, uh, under the shadow of some really awful things that people would say. So we appreciate that. Well, let's talk for a second now that we've kind of thought through what our kind of favorite characters are downstairs. What would you say as we think about them in terms of their their root motivations, you know, in terms of respect and value and, and approval, where does some of them fall? And, the, and the, way, the reason we're talking about this is because, you know, even though these are, uh, you know, these are characters in a TV show and so they're not real, Julian Fellows has done such an excellent job in creating these characters and filling them out in, in, in such wise and purposeful ways that you really do get a sense of if they were real people, this is kind of the kind of root motivation they would have. You know, so for example, you take someone like, you know, Mr. Carson, who is the, the butler, you know, the 60 something year old, probably butler who's been there uh, the, he, who was a foot, I think, an underfootman to the grandfather or great-grandfather of the current Lord Grantham. He's worked his way through life and now presents himself in this stately, wise way. But what, what root motivation would you say he works from? When I think of Mr. Carson, I think along the same lines that we were talking about with Mr. Bates wanting just some kind of respect, but for Carson, it's the respect of the family. Fa- like, he is concerned about the respectability of the family and his house and the staff that he runs more than 
pretty much anything else. If, if something, if there's a toe out of line, you will, Mr. Carson will let you know it. And he will be very, he'll show his displeasure and you'll be relegated to the downstairs and you won't be allowed to serve the family at dinner. Really like everything that he does is, is kind of around that. Um, and yet at the same time, you see this, this very like sensitive side of him too, where part of that is also coming from his love, genuine love for the family that he's worked with for all his life. Him and Lady Mary have this really beautiful relationship. It's almost father-daughter relationship where he so longs for, you know, Mary to have all the wonderful things in life and to have a beautiful house. And he kind of sees her as Downton's legacy. She's the one who's going to carry that on. So they have this very special relationship and he really just wants the Lord and the lady of the house to look at the work that he's done and say, you did a good job. You are presenting us well. Yeah. So you would say that probably Mr. Carson doesn't like to be wrong. Oh, no. Oh, no. In fact, he probably sees himself as right um, Mm -hmm. almost all the time. Yes. uh, In fact, even when Mrs. Hughes, who is his uh, alter ego in many ways on the on the female side of the house, she's kind of the head of the of the maids and, and making sure the house is physically taken care of upstairs. But there's also an interest as we go on in the show between between them. Uh, they love each other very much. They've obviously worked hard together. What's very interesting is that I believe, I don't know, you can, you can, you can tell me what you think, but I think that Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes are both respect-based people. I don't think either one of them likes to be wrong. I think both of them have their ideas very strongly about being competent, uh, being the best they can be, having the house be the best it can be, having everyone who works for them have very high expectations for everyone who's working for them. And so it feels like to me when those two and the, you know, spoiler alert, there's a romantic interest between them. Uh, they You have two basically two respect-based people in a, in a very intimate relationship. What do you, how does that work? It takes them a while to figure it out. It is a long, long, many season slow burn because if any of, if either one of them does something that in the other one's eyes is wrong, it sets them back like five steps in their relationship because it, and it's hard for them to find a, they agree on so many things, but when they disagree, it's hard for them to reconcile that with maybe how they are feeling about each other. And it takes a lot of vulnerability for them to even admit they like each other because even that, I think, and this is how I perceived it when it played out, is like to admit that they were vulnerable to the other person was sort of a wrong thing. And that to admit that would be wrong to do because as a person who needs to be right all the time, you can't admit any weakness. Right. And if yeah. if they were to admit that they loved each other, that would be some sort of weakness. And so it took them so long to figure it out. It was really quite rewarding and a great character arc for both yeah. of them to watch over the years. But right. um, yeah, it took them a long time. Well, I think with those two characters, one of the reasons they have a hard time coming together and getting it put together is you know, think about all the people they supervise and, and their failures are, are mostly by proxy. 
It's the people they're associated with that create a failure that they end up being responsible. So necessarily, it's going to be hard for them to get together in a relationship because they're going to have to depend. They're going to have to rely. They're going to have to be vulnerable. And what if this other who I want to be close to absolutely creates a failure for me? And respect-based people, they just struggle with failure. Mm, That's good. And you notice, too, how big respect is for them. They are respect-based people. You know, if anything, Mr. Carson both eschews respect. I mean, he he is a person of respect, doesn't eschew it. He wants respect, but he's someone who also, if you respect him and you do what needs to be done, he will respect you as well. And you'll see this often play out, and we haven't talked so much about the upstairs folks, but in his relationship with the upstairs folks, if they make a good decision that's respectable, you know, if Mr. Gra- if Lord Grantham, you know, who's struggling through something and he makes a, a, an important but difficult decision that really carries, you know, weight, you know, Mr. Carson really respects that. You can see that in him, you know. And so what's funny is, as we talk about, as Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes finally come together, and again, the spoiler alert, they do come together in a romantic way, that takes both of them recognizing how much they respect each other, you know? And the other thing that plays out, and you notice that, and you notice that the, that we've been talking about the kind of the antithesis of respect, uh, needing respect is wisdom. If you really understand and you drop your entitlement to being right, you drop your entitlement to clarity, you drop your entitlement to being, you know, to being successful or competent, then all of the stuff you're good at flows out through you in a way that helps other people. That's wisdom. And you see so many times when they finally get over themselves, especially Mr. Carson, when he finally gets over himself, how much wisdom he can bring in a situation. You know, and so and Mrs. Hughes as well. How often does she placate someone or does she solve a problem through being extremely wise, you know, in how she deals with someone, how she dealt with Anna, you know, in her horrible. That's that's probably a spoiler that we don't want to give away, but something horrible happens to Anna and it takes Mr. Bates in and all kinds of bad things happen. They're accused of crimes. And and in the midst of all of that. You know, it's Mrs. Hughes who really comes in and helps Anna with her wisdom uh, to placate all the parties involved. I was impressed with the way that played out, even though it was a really horrible storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was beautiful to see. And you, I mean, like you said, you see that with Carson as well, when Lady Mary is grieving over any number of tragic events that happened to her throughout the series. Um, It's always Carson who sits there to sit down and talk her through those moments. Um, And he does that so gently for a character like Mary, who I'm sure we'll talk about, but is this very strong. One of the things she says about herself is, you know, everyone knows I don't have a heart. Um, But Carson is the person that she goes to for wisdom because that's just what he, that's what, he provides when he can get over himself and enter that vulnerable space. Yeah, very much so. Who, who in the, so what you could list through the downstairs characters and the, and the respect-based people are pretty obvious. I mean, you have obviously Mr. Carson, but many of the men in this, and you have Tom, Thomas, you know, the under, well, at this point he's a footman and becomes different things, but his kind of squeamishly little, always playing around, trying to get people in trouble, but still, 
Where do you think he fits in here? Is he, he you know, you'd want to say that he's pride based, but in many ways, you know, that he's that he's uh, that he's respect based. But in many ways, he comes across more in the second category. You know, he comes across more as a value based person. Um, when he doesn't get valued, anytime he senses that people don't value him or worship him, you know, or find what he has to say to be important, he's constantly, um, that's what makes him upset, you know. Uh, when he snipes at somebody, it's almost always because it's like he didn't get, he doesn't, he's not being seen as, as valuable as he think he's, thinks he is. So for me, the Thomas character is kind of the quintessential value-based person, you know, in, in that character set. I don't know, what are you guys thinking about? Is there any, anybody else in there that fits in there? I mean, I think him and O'Brien together, Thomas and O'Brien together form this perfect little, it's, it's almost like they have this toxic triangle of people trying to get value from other people. So you'll see O'Brien try to manipulate Thomas into doing certain things because that will make her look better. You'll see Thomas do the same thing to O'Brien and then you'll watch them both go out and do it to other people where they, when they don't feel valued or important in the house, they will try to undermine other people to lift themselves up. And, you know, wanting value from other people doesn't always make you do that. But in the show, that's kind of how Julian Phillips has written them, where they, the way that they go, the way that they react when they don't get the value they want is then they go out and undermine other people. Exactly. And that, again, doesn't always have to happen that way, but that's how those characters manifest that. And um, I think Thomas, it's, you almost feel sorry for him at so many points because he tries so hard to get value and almost always his attempts fail. And I think that Julian Fells is showing us something about how people who, who desire value and desire to be at the, the top, when they try to go about that by undermining other people and manipulating other people, it doesn't it doesn't work that's not how you get value in fact there are moments later in the series where where thomas gets value is where he is seen just doing his job really well Mm -hmm. and that's how he gets himself to the next place and gets himself that value that he's been seeking is he just does his job really well or he just shows shows up to do his work or help someone out you know in in a rare moment of kindness for that character so um i definitely agree with you i think that Thomas is probably in that value care uh, territory as well as O'Brien. Yeah, it's interesting how Thomas's need for value and when he doesn't get value actually drives him to the ultimate expression of devalue. He devalues himself uh, all the way to the point of attempting suicide. Well, Sarah O'Brien is kind of the opposite, I think, of Thomas in a way like she just goes all the way, all dastardly all the way down. And there's a great scene where uh, she thinks the lady of the house has disrespected her, did, embarrassed her, diminished her value. And she sets soap outside the tub so that the lady of the manor will fall. And just, you know, that it's that painful for her to lose her value that she will just go dark and, and, you know, try to destroy the person that didn't give her value. Yeah, it's very interesting how they... They, uh, they, they let O'Brien kind of go all the way to that place. And then eventually she, she goes to another house and manipulates the situation so she can move somebody else out of the way to take her position. Um, whereas Thomas, in some ways, 
for some reason, they allow him to be redeemed a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he comes to the place where he actually sees after he's gone as far down as he possibly can, really. And then he comes back and, and they value him, you know. And then in the scene, again, spoiler alert, but, you know, in the Christmas scene at the end, when when the, the uh, Lord Grantham, you know, actually brings him in and asks him to replace Carson, who clearly needs to retire. Um, and at that very moment, Thomas rises back up to the place where his character is recognized as valuable. He's now the butler. Now he's kind of a foolish butler as we see in the movie, (laughs) but you know, and you see the scene again in the movie when, when Carson is brought back in, when the King and Queen are coming and Mary goes and gets Carson because, you know, he, she needs his expertise and his knowledge. And as soon as that happens, you see the anger flare up in Thomas toward Lord Grantham because he was downplayed, you know, and not valued. So it's very powerful the way they play that out. So what about the the people in the in the downstairs that you'd say might be approval based or in the way they behave? Is there anybody down there that kind of acts like they might be approval based? I would say Daisy, who's our little cute little kitchen maid, definitely acts out of wanting approval and I think you know in in the status of a kitchen maid that works very well like she's pretty much the lowest position in the house she isn't in a place where she can even think that she could demand respect or value all she really wants to do is have her work approved of um and you see her even in the open it's like in the opening episode I just remember her getting caught in a big room trying to light the fireplace I I forget whether it's the Lord lady of the house. And she like, oh, it's so apologetic that she's even caught there and skitters away back downstairs because she doesn't, she doesn't want to overstep. She just wants to do her job and, and move on um, Mm -hmm. and be recognized for that work. Her, her journey is really quite, quite beautiful to see as well, because you see her go from that at the very beginning to becoming more confident, to working with a cook, Mrs. Patmore, to, to work on cooking skills and even coming up, getting a farm of her own at some point, like she just, her, the, her journey of moving from looking for everyone else's approval around her to becoming a person who she can approve of. And she's like, Oh, I actually approve of what I'm doing. And that's enough um, is really beautiful. Yeah. And she even gets an education, you know, she takes the risk to get someone from the school to come and train her, you know, in math and in geography and history. She loves it, you know, that she can actually learn and move herself up. Think about for a minute how that that need for approval and, uh, you know, kind of the fear of making decisions, the need to be liked, how that plays out in her in kind of her relationships with the men, the other guys that are in the kitchen area or the downstairs. Well, it's interesting because, you know, of course, Thomas is always putting her down. But then there's one of the other footmen who actually really loves her and just unconditionally like thinks she's amazing. And it's really hard for her to accept it. And it's really sad because over again, spoiler alert, over the course of the show, this footman and Daisy, they end up getting married, but only when this footman is on his deathbed and kind of as, you know, Daisy's been told that she should marry this 
person as a his dying wish. And she is willing to do that despite feeling in herself that it's wrong because she doesn't feel the same way about this footman that that he feels about her. And and she she goes through with this marriage and then is wracked by guilt because she did this thing disingenuously at the time to what she really felt. And that is something that, oh my gosh, do I identify with? Like the, the amount of times that I have done things and said yes to things, usually not, you know, marriages. I'm not getting married to someone because I don't love them, but it, the amount of times I said yes to things that I do just because I want people to like me or I want to be thought well of. That's something that you often see Daisy kind of fall into throughout her journey is saying yes to things, getting married to someone on the deathbed, even though she feels like that's not really what she wants to do. Yeah. And just think of it. That's, you know, William, you know, uh, this is one of the footmen who went to World War One and then, you know, he was injured. And um, and yeah, you're right. She was she's constantly paralyzed by trying to to think she needs to meet the approval of, of other people around her and at the same time her inner her inner self and what she thinks about herself is very different, but she's involved. Think about the other guys as well. I mean, you think about Alfred, you know, one of the other footmen, you think about James. So they were going back and forth, you know, and then, and then uh, eventually, you know, in the, in the later part of the series, another one, and Andrew comes in, you know, and then you find out in the movie that they finally do. It takes her like four or five guys to go through, to get, to sort out, what she actually does think about herself, what her ego yeah. and what her identity really even is. And she turns out to be fairly solid in what she thinks about herself and who she is, but it doesn't come out until almost the end of the movie that she says those things. Exactly. And even, I, for, oh, I forget which one of these relationships it is, but she she's normally a very sweet person, but then there's this one relationship that she gets caught in where she becomes just someone so much more nasty and thankfully the characters around her kind of call her out and they're like you're not actually like that Daisy that's not who you want to be but but that's what can happen when you're consumed with approval from other people is that you kind of shape shift and become the thing that you think they want the most yeah and you definitely see Daisy doing that throughout and then like you said eventually growing about like beyond that in finding out who she is at her core. I like the fact that her gifts actually are very strong and that once she discovers them, she's no longer paralyzed. She can make, you know, she can be that person who stands up for herself, is more of a peacemaker in that she can say, I want to, these are important relationships that we, we need to make sure they're working well. So yeah, that's an important story arc as well. Well, that's our take on the downstairs characters of Downton Abbey. Uh, who in their own stories and reactions model the three three root motivations we've been talking about, respect, value, and approval. As you've been listening to the ways these characters live out their relationships in the vision of Julian Fellows, look at your own situation at home and your situation in your business. How would knowing your own heart better, or how would knowing the hearts of your family and the and your colleagues better bring you to a more healthy place of interaction with them? How would knowing that help you all thrive? Next month, we'll be back with Liz and Dennis to discuss the upstairs characters of the Crawley family and the world of Downton Abbey.
We're glad you joined us today. Our continuing conversations will bring to life the ideas that will cultivate your growth and success as a leader. Access our other episodes and more great information at thrivespacepodcast.com. We publish a monthly blog that is available on our website, along with a helpful chart on root motivations in the resource area. We'll see you next month for our second episode on the root motivations of Downton Abbey. I'm Dennis Humphrey. And I'm John Erickson. We'll see you next month.